Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, good evening, and I'm so glad many of you braved this crazy weather tonight. It's so cold and dark and damp and windy, too. Um, but before I, I start, I just thought I would mention, um, uh, we have some really beautiful new cushions. Many of you have noticed some new uh, Zafus that you're sitting on. And uh, Grant helped design them and uh, create the pattern and organize people. And a lot of people showed up to sew them, uh, fill them. Uh, how many people here were part of that? Carmen, Elaine, Mina, Virginia. Um, but the person who has really done so much work around here that hasn't received public thanks is Mina's daughter, Chiara. Who is, how old is she? Five. She has come every time there's been filling parties. She's helped fill almost all the cushions you're sitting on. She's provided the best moral support. And she discovered Grant's leg. And just the fun that we've had with her has been really amazing. And also, the Mindfulness for Families has started on Sundays. And Kiara's been there every week. And she's, she's been so wonderful. At the beginning, she was so shy, and now she's really kind of helping, uh, keeping the thing happening. So anyways, please thank her for all of us. Maybe we should make her a little card or something. Yeah. So this is talk number nine in our series on chapter three of the Yoga Sutra. And this is a chapter on the extraordinary powers, which we just got to last week. Um, I was in Halifax this weekend, and somebody there had just come back from India and told me that in Mysore, uh, at the Ashtanga Yoga Research Institute, when they study the Yoga Sutra, they actually skip this chapter. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was really interesting because I think so many people, because it's called the superpowers, they skip it. And especially in my experience of some of the people involved in that community, there's this kind of reverse imperialism, like, you know, Western white people are just so lazy. They could never get the superpowers, you know, and they, they skip that chapter. 
Did I record that? I don't know. <laughs> and um, and uh, um, what I hope to show this week is that these superpowers are not as esoteric as I think so many people, especially Western scholars, make them out to be. And I think anybody with a little meditation practice can kind of intuit that these are things that just start happening to you in practice. Uh, but also to remember that these are things that happen to you naturally in practice, especially in retreat practice. And so that's what I'm going to talk about a, a little bit tonight. Um, also, because Christmas is coming, and I realize we haven't gotten very far, I'm going to speed up tonight, and I'm going to try and go through at least ten lines, uh, if that's possible. We'll see. So last week, uh, Patanjali was saying that the first superpower one begins to achieve, the first city one begins to achieve, is the ability to see the difference between words, perception, and meaning. And this gives you insight into the nature of language. In Chip's translation, it's not just the nature of language, but the nature of the language of all beings. Um, I won't get too much into that tonight, but just as a review, um, the commentary was that language, words, and meaning get lumped together as one thing. And the way that I spoke about that was really looking at how um, in the patterns of perception that we use, uh, they're already filtered, and they're always filtered. And you can't escape language. Not only can you not escape language, but when you have experiences outside of language, they then get structured by language again. And then I gave a little bit of a critique of Derrida and Wittgenstein and Jackson Pollock, saying that if they had a meditation practice, they could have just articulated what they did more simply, and they could have been nicer. Anyways, we won't get into that too much, but. Um, and also I said that pretty much any artist who is really working these days with language also has a spiritual practice. But I think if you really look deeply into language and you struggle with the way your experience is so structured by language, and for Patanjali it's your perception that's structured by language, then this is a valid spiritual path. Um, anyways, we won't get too far into that. Um, also, something that you might notice in this chapter on the superpowers is that there's no mention of God. And this is central to uh, Patanjali, I think, and also central to the Buddha. For the Buddha, for Buddhism, there's no real idea of God. And in fact, I think the Buddha felt that the idea of a self and clinging to a self was an internalized, projected reflection of God. And the Buddha especially thought that this reification of the self or of God is actually at the root of all our problems. And so he was not really too interested in this idea. Uh, and Patanjali seems to move in this direction as well. And yogis really shine their light on the human side not the transcendent side. So we're used to, in our culture, the Abrahamic religions that are always shining their light on the transcendent side. 
which makes the human side of emotions and gender and the body all kind of like sinful, you know. And in the yoga tradition, we shine our light on the human side and we don't denigrate the transcendent side, we don't denigrate the human side, but we find our path through the human side, through emotions, through our own habits and where we're stuck. In fact, one of the things someone mentioned to me who used to study with Trungpa Rinpoche, because I was just in Nova Scotia where there are still lots of Shambhala Buddhists, um, is that Trungpa Rinpoche said in the 70s that Buddhism will come to the West through psychology. I thought this was a pretty good prediction. He didn't know about John Kabat-Zinn yet. Um, but th th that was an interesting passage, or an interesting quote, I think, because there is this sense that the Dharma comes in through the human side, not so much through the transcendent side, through the God side. Um, and shining the light on the human side means shining our light on emotions, on habits, um, on Elaine's cold feet that need a blanket, or your cold heart that needs a hug, or a warm bed, or even maybe the fact that you don't even know how to stay warm. Maybe you don't know how to do what you need to do to nourish yourself, and that's also uh, a valid path um, to really take care of the human side of things. So then in meditation practice, what starts to happen as we get concentrated is we're staying with the human side and slowly as things calm down and we get concentrated, the hindrances don't arise, not even slightly. Okay, And this is not something that tends to happen in daily practice. This really, in my experience, happens in retreat practice with lots of good guidance and silence. And you get concentrated in a way where you have what Patanjali calls pratyahara, which is when the sense organs stop going after sense objects and they uncouple with their hunger. And then we become less interested in the world and very, very focused on the object of meditation. The example I keep using is the breath. Um, so there's no more kind of objects out there. We're just more focused on process. You see? And that's why Patanjali says the first thing you notice when you start noticing process is language. Right? Um, Another thing about the yoga tradition, and you find this also in Buddhism, is that yogis have always tried to show their superpowers. So I think in this chapter we have the coming together of superpowers and this focus on what happens when you go so deep in the human side that you're no longer thinking of our humanness in terms of our problems, in terms of our emotions, in terms of our habits, but we're actually seeing, maybe I would even say, we're actually seeing the non-humanness of being human. But we'll get to that. Um, it's interesting because when I was studying at university, 
One of the things I always found fascinating, because I studied a lot in the religion department, was that the theology school really felt like the opposite academic stream of theology was anthropology. And I always found this a fascinating thing. Whereas on the one hand, theology is about the transcendent, anthropology is about the human. And I always thought it was so interesting in academia how this kind of split was reflected. On the one hand, you have the human. On the other hand, you have the transcendent. And in yoga, we're kind of putting them together, but not through the belief side, but through the human side. So uh, hindrances are not arising in our practice. We're involved in our human entanglement. And then slowly the hindrances let go of us, maybe. And then the mind goes through some stages where it gets calm and then a little calm and then a little more calm and then very calm. Uh, That's my simplistic way of talking about the stages. Um, But actually, maybe in a way, now that I just said that, I think it's not true. Probably it's more like calm, not too calm, really not calm, very calm, not too calm. I really don't think these stages are so linear. Um, and, uh, and then we get to, to the um, superpowers. So let's read this together, starting on line 18. And I just want to kind of fly through this a little bit, if that's okay. Directly observing latent impressions, those are the sangskaras, line 18, yeah. Directly observing latent impressions, so the sangskaras we've been talking about all chapter, with perfect discipline yields insight into previous births. Okay? Scholars fight over what this means. Does it mean that insight into the sangskaras uh, uh, allow us to see our previous births? Some scholars say so. I would disagree with this because the term Patanjali has been focusing on is the sangskaras. So I think what he's talking about here is the way sangskaras keep coming to life, moment to moment to moment, that everything that exists is a sangskara. A table is a sanskara, a bell is a sanskara, a relationship is a sanskara, breathing is a sanskara. Anything that's born in conditions, which is everything perceivable, is a sanskara. And they keep coming into existence. And when we're very still, we see how the sanskaras come into existence. And I think this is in line with how Patanjali, his spirit. So I don't like the translation where you kind of add on this sense that this has to do with, you know, insight into previous births and previous lives. I don't think that that's kind of in keeping with his idea of the samskaras. But anyways, this is considered the second superpower. The third superpower, we'll go through these and then we can talk about them. Focusing with perfect discipline on the perception of another yields insight into that person's consciousness. When you really look closely at another person from a place of stillness, and you really sense that person, you can gain insight 
into what's going on in that person's consciousness. Not in that person's mind. It's not saying you can see into their mind. And, you know, I met this psychologist. I, I forgot his name. He, he was just in Toronto teaching. Anyways, he does work reading people's faces. He does a lot of work teaching people at the cup, teaching customs officers how to read people's faces. And he is so skilled that he says that he can do couple work and he can know what's going on in the couple by reading their faces within the first three minutes. It's amazing. Anyways, he had lots of people at his workshop. Um, but one of the things he said is you can read someone's face, but you can't ever know what they're thinking. Right? And this is what all the neuroscientists in Wisconsin who are working with the Dalai Lama are talking about now is they can measure what's going on in someone's brain during meditation practice, but they don't know what the content is, right? So now they have to work now with psychologists to interview the people to find out some of the things they're thinking about. So it's not saying here you can get into someone's mind, it's just you can see their consciousness. I think we all know this. You know. Um, that's the third, uh, uh, fourth, uh, which is line 20. But not insight regarding the object of those perceptions, since the object itself is not actually present in that person's consciousness. Isn't that a good little... Philosophers will like that. So you can have insight into what's going on in someone's consciousness but not the object that they're conscious about, because that's not actually in that person's consciousness. I like that one a lot. Okay. When the body's form is observed with perfect discipline, it becomes invisible. The eye is disengaged from incoming light, and the power to perceive is suspended. Eye consciousness is suspended. I would translate it that way. In other words... And I think we did this tonight in Shavasana. I kind of hinted at this. But in meditation practice, even when we're just sitting up, when you close your eyes and you start feeling sensations in the body, your mind superimposes that you're feeling those sensations in your body. Because you have a visual of a body and you say, I'm experiencing sensations in the body. But actually, if you really look at the experience of sensations, they don't happen in a body. They happen in awareness. They just happen. So when you close your eyes and you really meditate on powers, uh, patterns of sensation, you start to see how it's linguistically happening in your body. Or with images, you see it happening in your body. But actually, it's happening in awareness. We just say it's happening in our body, right? But if you close your eyes and you, you don't have that image anymore of your body or you imagine your, bo your body is as big as the room or you imagine your body is very, very, very small, like as thin as a hair, then um, you can play with the image of the body and then you can experience sensations as sensations but not as happening in a body. Does that, does that make sense a little bit? So he's not saying your body goes away. He's just saying your experience of your body drops away, but you still have sensations. You see? This is a superpower. We're going to test all these out after. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so in the model um, that he laid out in the first chapter, yeah. um, sense object meets sense organ. Yeah. There's a sensation produced in the. There's a uh, there's consciousness produced. Yes, there's a sensation produced, but since the word sensation is not just physical sensation, it's sensation in any sense organ. So sensation includes like a thought is considered a sensation. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but this, let's say the um, sense organ of the eye or the tongue or the ear, yeah. doesn't that create a sensation in the body? Uh, yes, but that's not happening anymore because pratyahara is happening. So the sense organs and the sense objects are not meeting anymore. That's how inward the focus is. That's the difference between samadhi and dharana. So in this limb of yoga, we're talking about such quietness in the mind that the sense organs and the sense objects, when they meet, it, it's not really registering. Yeah. Like you're so concentrated that if there's a sound far away, you're just, you're not, you're not affected by it anymore. Yeah. You've kind of shut the world out. Yeah. You've gone so human. Yeah. Does that, does that make sense? Mm. Yes, no? Yeah. Yes, no. Yes, no. <laughs> do, do you want to say more? No. You can. <laughs> That's the first superpower. <laughs> Likewise, through perfect discipline, other perceptions, sound, smell, taste, touch, can be made to disappear. Mike? The effect of action may be immediate or slow in coming, and observing one's actions with perfect discipline or studying omens yields insight into death. He doesn't say yields insight into your death. He doesn't say yields insight into what happens after death. Just yields insight into death. Um, focusing with perfect discipline on friendliness. These are the Brahma Viharas show up again here for those people who think that Patanjali was not influenced by the Buddha. Um, focusing with perfect discipline on friendliness, compassion, delight, and equanimity, one is imbued with their energies. Right? Really opening to the experience of compassion without having an object, one is imbued, one becomes compassion, one becomes friendliness, one becomes delight. So rather than trying to be compassionate, you become compassion. Yeah. Focusing with perfect discipline on the powers of an elephant or other entities, one acquires those powers. I can't speak about that one. <laughs> Being absorbed in the play of the mind's luminosity yields insight about the sudden, hidden, and distant. Focusing with perfect discipline on the sun yields insight about the universe. Focusing with perfect discipline on the moon yields insight about the stars' positions. That's pretty good for 2,600 years ago. Focusing with perfect discipline on the sun will yield insight about the universe, right? 
That's a long time before we realized the sun didn't rise and didn't set. Focusing with perfect discipline on the moon yields insight about the stars' positions. This is before people were crossing oceans, navigating with the stars. It's pretty amazing. Uh, focusing with perfect discipline on the pole star yields insight about their movements. Focusing with perfect discipline on the naval energy center, chakra, yields insight about the organization of the body. Focusing with perfect discipline on the pit of the throat eradicates hunger and thirst. Focusing with perfect discipline on the central axis, the tortoise channel, one cultivates steadiness. Um, in Tantra Yoga, the, the, the terms Sushumna Nadi and um, the tortoise channel are synonymous. So it said the central axis is also like a tortoise. Some of you know this comes from the famous uh, story in Indian mythology of spinning Mount Meru on the navel of a tortoise, um, which is how the human central axis came to be. I don't know if you know that story. Maybe we'll have time for it. Uh, focusing with perfect discipline on the pit of the throat eradicates hunger and thirst. Focusing with perfect discipline on the tortoise channel, one cultivates steadiness. Focusing with perfect discipline on the light in the crown of the head, one acquires the perspective of the perfected ones. Okay, here come the punchlines. Or all these accomplishments may be realized in a flash of spontaneous illumination. Focusing with perfect discipline on the heart, one understands the nature of chitta. Experience consists of perception in which the luminous, the sattva aspect of the phenomenal world is mistaken for absolutely pure awareness. Focusing with perfect discipline on the different properties of each yields insight into the nature of pure awareness. That is such an awful translation. Basically what he's saying is that when you start to see these superpowers happening uh, in these levels of concentration, you start to see that pure awareness and the stuff of the world are not exactly the same because everything you can notice is changing, but awareness doesn't seem to be changing. It's just watching. It's kind of there in the background the whole time, although he won't name what it is. Um, that's not awareness. Is, he, is it being contrasted with something ordinary there? Like, like is experience being contrasted with perfect discipline? Experience consists of perceptions in which the luminous aspect of the phenomenal world is mistaken. Okay, so, so the way I would change that is what he's saying here is that um, limited, limited perception or what he calls chitta, consciousness, is yeah, this is a very funny translation. 
You can also see how long it is. Um, there might be a critique going on here where traditionally in yoga practices, especially since this is also critiquing Sankhya yoga, where you really focus on sattva, you focus on the luminous qualities of existence. And that seems like a superpower, is that you start just focusing on what's light and what's luminous. It's the kind of lightest guna. And Patanjali's saying here, that's not the superpower. That's actually still consciousness. The real superpower is seeing that pure awareness is separate from that even. Does that make sense? These last superpowers, these last statements he's starting to like critique the superpowers, I think is a bit of a sense of humor in it too, especially if you know the, the context. Does this, is this too technical or? No? Very, yeah, very much like the Heart Sutra. No, no, no. Yeah. Following this insight, The senses, hearing, feeling, seeing, tasting, smelling, may suddenly be enhanced. These sensory gifts... Okay, and now this is the most important sentence of the whole chapter. Drum roll? You don't have the drum here. There is a drum here. This is the best part. Um, These sensory gifts... He's referring to all the superpowers... They may feel like attainments, but they actually distract you from samadhi. Isn't that so good? They may feel like attainments. Uh, Vyasa's commentary on this, he says, the reason why all of these superpowers are distractions is because they start to feel over time like they're happening to a self. And that's what ends up pulling you out of the concentration. So you become super intuitive about something and then you feel like you know and then the identity comes through again. And so he spends all this time kind of talking about all these superpowers that people think are so esoteric, which I would argue I don't think are really so far out. Nobody's flying or walking through walls. Um, And then he says, but be careful. Because all of these really interesting things that are all accessible in concentration practice are all distractions because they can all emerge as a new identity. And then you can think you're intuitive. We, get, we all get like this with intuition, right? Doesn't it, is anybody here intuitive? I, I used to have a, a teacher that always said to me, because I'm very intuitive, that Intuition is either 100% right or 100% wrong. (laughs) Right? Because you get intuitive and you think you know, and then you've built up this whole identity around it. So he's saying, and not even holding on to that. By relaxing one's attachment to the body and becoming profoundly sensitive to its currents, consciousness can enter another's body. He just adds one there. I think actually I'll stop here because we've covered, covered so much. Uh, let's stop at 38. These sensory gifts may feel like attainments, but they distract one from real integration. Why? Because you start to build an identity out of it again. 
And any of you who have been on meditation retreats where you've started to actually feel something that really seems kind of outside of anything you've felt before, if you have a good teacher, they'll either show you how to deepen it or elegantly explain that you should let that go as soon as possible. I remember this. I was on a retreat once, and I don't know if I've told this story. Forgive me if I have, but where I had this experience for the first time in my life of not thinking. I was outside. I'd gotten up from sitting. Actually, there's something interesting about Patanjali here. He doesn't say that these happen in meditation. He's just saying focusing with perfect discipline. But actually, I would say most of these kind of intuitions don't happen on the cushion. They happen when you get up. They happen as you're walking to the bathroom or going to get food. And I remember having this experience of real stillness without any, it was just totally spacious. And then the next two years of retreats were horrible because I was always measuring everything that was happening by that experience. And in retrospect, I see it's really good. You have these experiences, and it kind of keeps you going because you realize a whole other field that you never could have seen unless you had those years of practice. But then you hold on to it. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's actually, I think, the big problem with mystical experience is that the mind comes in and confuses the content of the experience for the experience, you see? So you drop some acid and you have this experience of being free of certain thoughts or patterns of thought and then you think it's the acid, you see? But it, as opposed to really seeing the mind side, like what just happened in the mind to have this experience? And then you confuse the content of the experience, which is because of cultural vocabulary. But anyways, what do you think? That's my commentary. Thoughts? Comments? It brings to mind for me the um, importance of practice off and off the cushion and yeah. Yeah. Just, just that, you know, while we think of meditation as grounding, mm -hmm. that as meditation gets more concentrated, yeah. it becomes psychedelic in whatever form. Uh -huh. Grounding then becomes relating with others, uh -huh. relating with activities. Yeah. When I'm when I'm teaching, if if we're on retreat and somebody starts having an experience where something really deep is going on, but they're not calm, right? So you could have some, some really like deep insight developing, but there's no calmness, then I'll get them to stop sitting and to really focus on work practice. I'll send them to the kitchen. I don't even tell them I'm doing that. I just said the kitchen really needs help and get them out of the sitting practice because the insights will keep developing but if there's no calmness in the background, then it doesn't really deepen in an integrated way. 
and uh, and uh, this is a, a really important thing um, to, to know that the importance of having the activity to match your meditation practice really keeps this pro- process protest uh, really deep and, and wide, which is I, I think what you're what you're hinting at there. Did you want to say any more about that? Yeah. Um, a lot of times these experiences happen, you know, spontaneously. Uh-huh. Um, and um, sometimes, you know, it can be really jarring because you mm-hmm. have no reference for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't, I mean, I've forgotten it. It's over. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. Know. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important to practice with teachers. Because I think as we start to get deeper in meditation practice, the mind comes in to trick us and hijack the process in the strangest ways. And then we have experiences that are really deep, but we don't know how to integrate them. You know. No, not not necessarily. I don't think you need to bring out wisdom from those experiences. I think they're just those experiences. But I think uh, to process them with a teacher while they're happening is really a profound thing. And I think it says something also about our society, where we rely so much on experts, and have so little people in our culture who are wise. And being an expert and being wise about these things are not exactly the same thing. And you see so many people coming off meditation retreats going to see psychologists to talk about their meditation experience who don't know anything about meditation. And then it gets interpreted. And then something about that is often helpful, but it still often leaves people feeling like they had this experience and they, they really want to explore it in a deeper way. You know? Yeah, I, you know, I was just teaching the uh, Norman Feldman, Molly Swan, and I were we're doing a mentorship program together, training I think nine people, eight people, and um, one of the things we just spent a lot of time talking about is 
when people are on retreat and they start having intense experiences, how to be able to read those experiences and how best to serve those, those people. So that while that's going on, we can really hold people in the experience in the right way. Um, and there's so many different kinds of people that they experience things in really different ways. Because as you, you just said, you have this experience and then the mind wants to come in and go, why? Right? What is this? Why is this happening to me? And that's where things start to get, get tricky. Somebody else. Superpowers. So quiet. I really appreciate how the Brahma Viharas are included. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, and I'm wondering, is this the first time in um, all the sutras that it's mentioned? No, it was, uh, in, it's talked about in detail at the end of the first chapter when Patanjali talks about um, hindrances arise in your practice, laziness, he gives a list of, I can't remember, there are eight hindrances. And then he talks about how the hindrances give rise to symptoms. So when, like, what's one of the hindrances? Hedonism is one of them. When there's a lot of hedonism, it gives rise to symptoms that you see in your practice. And the ones he describes are depression, the inability to sit still, sadness, uh-huh. And then he says, and if you really want to work with the symptoms of the obstacles, you need to work with the Brahma Viharas. So that when the hindrances arise, you meet them with compassion. You meet them with kindness. It's a beautiful way of, of thinking about the Brahma Viharas. So Patanjali employs the Brahma Viharas to really talk about how to meet difficulty. But then here... He talks about them as being superpowers. Yeah. It's interesting. There, there, a few years ago, there was a, a, a retreat taught at the Insight Meditation Society that I went on by a teacher named Lee Brasington. And it was a retreat for experienced meditators on the jhanas, or these different states of samadhi. And I was really excited because I thought, oh, wow. I mean, I'd never heard of a retreat where you really could get into these stages of concentration. So I was expecting like all this really incredible uh, meditation instruction on how to go into concentration states. And I was really shocked that for the whole 10 days, nine days, how he taught concentration was through the Brahma Viharas. We would practice loving kindness over and over and over and over until you use the feeling of it to get concentrated. And that was the first time I ever connected the Brahma Viharas with concentration practice. That if you really work on delight, equanimity, kindness, it actually gets you really, really concentrated. And it was funny because at a time in my life where I thought concentration was like, way above working on compassion. Like compassion was kind of like the thing that all the like, I don't know, women were doing <laughs> in Boston. And like, like concentration was really like the deep stuff, you know. And then I go to this concentration retreat and it's like, oh, well actually the way into it is <laughs> through the love door. Yeah. Um, I was 
kind of goes back to what we were talking about with language. But when you when you say that you use something like compassion to get to the concentration, yeah. Um, what's happening? Well, the, the technique, the first technique we worked on was uh, half a day we just focused on mindfulness of breathing. And then, uh, and we were encouraged not to do walking meditation and really just to sit, 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 sit. sit. And then we started doing this practice where you go into your body and you feel where there's any pleasure. You feel where there's any pleasure. Any place there's pleasure. And you breathe with it, and then you watch what happens. And what happens is you start focusing on the pleasure feeling, and then it starts spreading. So for me, it was in the chest, and you start breathing there, and then it just starts spreading. And the idea is to, to stay in this, and this is for exper- was for experienced meditators, but... The idea is to stay in this place where you can keep staying with the pleasure. And then once you do that for a day, then we did it with friendliness. So he would offer different ideas of how to contact friendliness. So maybe uh, think about a neutral person who you're friendly to and until you get the feeling. And then let go of the person and just feel the feeling of friendliness and breathe with it. And then it starts expanding. And then... It's not like you're trying to be friendly or something. It's just that all you feel is just friendliness. Yeah. I'm working on that with the um, Julian Fantina. <laughs> yeah. So do, do, can you feel that a little bit? Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's Okay, yeah, yeah, that's a few retreats before. Yeah, first I would learn how to do that. Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise when the discomfort arises, you won't know what to do, and then it'll just screw you up. Yeah, that's why there was an application. (laughs) Somebody else. You weren't here last week. Oh, is this what you were? This we spent. It was. It was so intense that the recorder shut down (laughs) (laughs) halfway through the talk. (laughs) I was saying terrible things about Derrida, and the thing just stopped. Do you want to just see that sentence? Because it actually starts off the superpowers. It, what line was that again? Well, it was 10 powers ago. Yeah, 18, I think. Or 17? 17. Um, word, meaning, and perception tend to get lumped together each confused with the others, 
Focusing on the distinction between them with perfect discipline yields insight into the nature of language. The first part of that is such a good translation. Um, this is Chip at his best. That, that the word, the meaning, and the perception of the thing all tend to get lumped together. I guess what I... Okay, I understand that. So what I got the impression of is that when you start to talk about directly this perfect discipline, yeah. that when that, that that can um, dissolve, that you can be with a kind of um, seeing something without yeah. that. Yeah, without that. And that's what the superpowers are. Yeah, but this is an interesting thing, is that when, when, it, when Patanjali talks about deep concentration where these powers start to arise, he, he talks about them as leading to insight. And that's really interesting, because I think for most of us, we think that these powers of concentration are so deep, there's no language, and it's just nothing. But Patanjali is saying, no, there's these experiences, and they lead to insight. Right? And then language comes back. And then and we then frame it. Yeah, always, always, always. Language always comes back. So last week what we talked about, does anybody remember the rice cake? Mm -hmm. Was this Zen quote. Some of you weren't here, but there's this Zen quote about how you can't eat a painted rice cake. It can't satisfy your hunger, right? And so this is a quote that is often used and abused to, to critique language and to say there's something deeper than just the painted rice cake, right? That, that the painted rice cake is not the real religious experience. The real experience is the actual rice cake. And Dogen said, does anybody remember? No, nobody remembers. Dogen said, all rice cakes are painted. They're painted with flour, just like basically saying everything's painted and your hunger is painted. And he even says the Buddha is a painting. And everything you think about enlightenment is another painting. And you can't get out of painting. You're always painting the world. So you sit, you come underneath language, you have deep insight, and then you use your cultural vocabulary to then talk about it. That was Krishna consciousness. That was Jesus. That was being, you know, you know whatever vocab. that was God. And I really believe, and I think Patanjali would say this too, that you can't have a mystical experience that's not mediated. It's always mediated by vocabulary. Always. Because even when you get under language, it, nothing stops there. You then construct it again. You have to find a way of talking to yourself about it. And if you can't, then there's a kind of trauma, actually. Yeah. Well, it's just bringing to mind this idea of, I'm not sure who was speaking about it, but just about integrating this musical experience. Yeah, I think Christine said that. Because, yeah. in a way, I, what it brings to mind for me is that they aren't necessarily integrated. Like, that there is, there is something shocking about such an experience. Yes. And then a story of some kind that re situates it, comes in to yeah. make sense of that. Uh-huh. But that 
at least one thing I can see that's important about a mystical experience, because there's part of this that might say, well, then why have them? Uh -huh. Is that they disrupt. In the beginning, they disrupt hmm. the, um, the rigid fixed self or rigid fixed point of view. Yes. Okay. I would I, I would agree, and I'd also add that the mystical experience doesn't change anything. These superpowers don't change anything. What changes something is just insight, and it doesn't matter how it comes. And I think that's what we haven't gotten there, but that's what Patanjali is going to say, that just having these deep experience, it doesn't change anything. It's kind of disappointing, isn't it? Jack Cornfield says, after the ecstasy, the laundry. <laughs> right? After the ecstasy, the laundry. Um, but insight motivates us to change when it's really deep. It motivates us to, 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 to change our lives. Yeah. Yeah. I once asked Robert Thurman, what is enlightenment? And he, he said, it's supreme deja vu. <laughs> Which I thought was a really good answer. Um, you, you have these experiences of waking up that really, that, that they're unshakable. You will never forget your whole life. It changes completely how you see yourself. Uh, but it doesn't make your problems with your mom go away. Right? It doesn't make your debt go away. It doesn't make, you know, Rob Ford nicer. It doesn't change anything, actually. But it can lead in supported the right way to the, a kind of insight that does motivate you to live differently. But the actual experience doesn't change anything. And I think when we talk in a way where these experiences eliminate patterns for good, I think it's kind of irresponsible and unethical. I've never seen that with anybody. But somebody can have an experience so deep. A few years ago, I was on retreat with somebody. They were on retreat. We were at Sugar Ridge. We were doing work in the garden. He, he was ill. And he had this experience walking after a long sit and seeing his shadow. Really seeing his shadow. And having this experience of actually just seeing himself completely different. Right? 
It's hard for us to understand because we want to interpret it. Oh, the shadow, it represents the you know. <laughs> but he, it was just this experience of seeing his shadow, and he saw his life in a completely different way. And that really motivated him to continue. But that experience was what it was. And now probably every time he goes on retreat, he's waiting for the sun to be in the right way (laughs) to get the shadow. My teacher had her big awakening experience eating oatmeal. She was eating oatmeal and suddenly everything turned into oatmeal. Everyone, everything and everyone was oatmeal. And we hear these stories. And the problem with hearing the story is then you try to set that story up in your experience. That's why I, I'm always careful not to talk too much about my, my meditation experience. Only so much, but if I say too much, then you'll, some part of you will take that in in some way and compare your experience to it. Like, everybody will be making oatmeal in the morning. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm going to have that experience with oatmeal. And there's always the famous Dogen quote where Dogen says, enlightenment is not what you think it is, because imagine if it was. Imagine if you had this awakening experience, and then when it happened, you said, oh, exactly like I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to stop here because we have something else planned before we chant, which is Lori and Christiane. Um, We're almost at the end of our membership drive to actually uh, create a proper budget for Center of Gravity where we can survive. Elaine is on the board, and she can attest that this has been the first month that actually we've been able to balance the books and like pay people and pay our rent. Um, All because, uh, primarily because of um, um, membership. So um, I asked Lori and also Christiane if they would just talk two minutes each about why they became members of Center of Gravity. And has anybody here not received the letter about membership? Can you put up your hand? Have you not received a letter about membership? Okay, so Cassandra will bring you the letter. If you can just keep your hand up, if you don't know what we mean by membership. And who wants to go first? Lori? Okay. This is so exciting to have someone else talk. Thank okay. you. Um, well, I've been coming here since roughly since last March. And... Um, just had really good experiences here, both the yoga and the and the uh, meditation and the talks. And I think it's really important to um, to um, for people to to work on their, I guess, enlightenment, if you will. Um, but to be able to overcome, for me, like to be able to overcome my fears and and anger and sadness and all these sorts of things, not to get rid of them, but to be able to deal with them and not have them control me. And so, you know, to control me to, you know, buy things and do nasty things and whatever. Um, Because I think as a society, we see that going on a lot and it's really destructive. And we need to change 
we need to change that. We need to like raise people's consciousness and give them the ability to to be the person they want to be and create the society we want and not destroy ourselves, basically. And I see that work going on here, and I think it's really important to support. Uh, to support. So that's why. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Laurie. Thank you. Christiane? We're going to do this for the next couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, center of gravity is kind of like a my home base on Tuesday nights. And it's really important that it's here for me. It's like a really sweet way for me to just ground. And I notice it actually more when I don't show up. And um, like there's so many people here that I love so much. And so I feel like I come home to my family all the time. And um, when I miss that, like I can really feel it in my life. So I think like, from my experience, like both personally and professionally, how hard it is to like pay the rent and like make sure I pay everyone that needs to get paid. Um, I can kind of imagine like how tough running center of gravity is. And then it makes me think about like, well, what if center of gravity wasn't here? And that's why I chose to become a member because I really want it to be here for as long as it makes sense to be here or wherever we end up physically. But so that's important to me. I get nervous speaking in front of people. <laughs> but um, the other thing that's important to me is like you bring really amazing teachers. And um, I only got to see the public talk of Bernie this year, but it's like changed my life, I feel like. Um, and so I want teachers to keep coming here. And. Um, I work with a lot of teachers, and I feel like Michael's been most helpful in like how to deal with tragedy in my life. And um, I'm just really grateful for that, and for everyone here. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And can I say sorry one more thing? Oh, keep going. I'm on the lower end of the membership scale financially because that's all I could afford. And I thought about, like, I do come and practice asana and I do come and um, pay my dana for the dharma talks and everything. Um, But I kind of see it as this commitment to it being held here so that those times where I don't come here, it's like I'm still contributing because it's not that I don't um, want it to be here. And even though I'm not here, I can feel you guys all sitting here. And so um, that's another reason. So I think that's it. Thank you. <laughs>